Welcome to the Advocacy Podcast, Journeys to Excellence. We speak with Queen's Council, trial lawyers and judges from around the world about how they excel in the courtroom. Please subscribe on your favourite podcast platform and visit us for additional resources at theadvocacypodcast.com. I'm your host, Bibi Badejo, and our guest today is super lawyer Rex Paris. Based in Lancaster, California, Rex is a specialist in personal injury litigation. He has a reputation as a highly innovative trial lawyer and uses cognitive science and neurolinguistic programming to improve courtroom interactions. Rex talks about the neurology of the courtroom, how that impacts us as trial lawyers, and how we can use it to devastating effect in our own trials. Hello, Rex. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm really great, thank you. I'm so glad to have you on the podcast as well. So before we start, um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, please? Well, I'm 68 years old. I'm an attorney in uh, California, about 70 miles outside of Los Angeles. We have offices throughout Southern California. I'm also the mayor of Lancaster, city of Lancaster, and I'm the uh, president of Carthronics, which is a biotech company that are, we've got about eight drugs in the pipeline now. And the first one, which starts human trials next year, we have every expectation is going to uh, cure osteoarthritis, which is huge. I think even huge is an understatement. So you've got an incredibly impressive resume, but obviously you didn't start there. So can you just tell us about your journey to becoming a trial lawyer? Because I know it hasn't been an easy one. You know, it's kind of unique, I guess, but I think everybody's story is unique. It wasn't traditional. I don't have a high school education. Dropped out in the 10th grade. I don't know how the, what the equivalent of that would be in, in Europe, but here it's not very far. <laughs> so is that about 14, 15? Yes, yes. And, you know, I had, uh, what would we call them, adjustment issues. <laughs> and <laughs> did not get along with authority very well. Didn't get along with people very well. I mean, I, you know, you, we all develop these facades to deal with the world. But I was essentially, you know, I was frightened. I was frightened of people. I couldn't walk through the high school cafeteria. It was just too stressful to do that. It was very strange. When I look back at, you know, pre-college, it's still very strange to me. I went into college without any social skills, except I could read. You know, I, I'd love to read. And because of that, I was able to pretty much educate myself and catch up and then go on to law school. And it's been an unchanging journey in that respect is, you know, when you don't have certain elementary skills and you're in a university, it's difficult. You know? But it also gives you the awareness that, you know, every day you have to be studying something. You have to catch up. So I just had that ability. I tell people that, you know, the only thing I have that you don't have is I have an iron ass. I can sit in that library and study all day. And I still believe that. You know, I get up at four o'clock in the morning and I, I study uh, persuasion skills or cognitive science. And that's, I'm sure, that's what contributed to being as um, successful 
a trial lawyer and other careers as you are now, just that studying of of everything, really. Yeah, I've adopted the view that, you know, we don't have free will. We're just mechanistic. It's just a biological mechanism. That's what our brain is. And so to that extent, it's predictable. We know what, what will happen given certain inputs. Now, it's incredibly complex, and so we're, we're just at the beginning of learning all the nuances of it. But when you start with that premise, it not only makes life a lot easier, it makes it more interesting because it's decipherable. You can figure it out. You can plan. You can foresee what's going to happen to a certain extent. And it's all probabilistic, so you know, you know there's no certainty to it but you increase the odds of certain things happening. And that's how I run the city. And the city is the first net zero city in the world. We were the first city to require all housing to be net zero, meaning you produce the power you use and you save it in batteries in the garage. And we are now in the process of switching over to hydrogen power. So we'll actually be off the grid before too much longer. Now that's impressive. (laughs) It really is. My role is to persuade people to do it. The really smart people are the ones that figured out how to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Great. So we're going to get to um, the area of persuasion shortly. But one thing I just wanted to pick up on was where you said in high school, you were scared of people. And that fear is not an obvious thing to overcome when you go to college, for example. It's not like you can read a book and that's it, it's fine, Um, you're able to interact with people. So can you just share with us what steps you took or what sorts of things that you employed in order to become not fearful of people? Because speaking to you now, I would never have guessed that. No, I know that. You know, I mean, people, what people present to the world is not who that person is. And I think we know that and recognize that more and more. It was a very slow process. The biggest thing was probably in 1995, I went to the uh, Jerry Spence Trial Lawyers College and was there for a month which to learn trial skills. And when I walked away, I walked away with the recognition that these are skill sets. That's all they are, you know? There's no such thing as a great lawyer. There's no such thing as a great orator. There's people that have certain skill sets and our ability to define what those skills are, to shave it down as thin as possible, and then master them, you know, one skill at a time is what it takes. But, you know, I was going to say that's all it takes, but it is quite a bit, actually. (laughs) You know, I have four children, and uh, it's been quite a journey, you know. They tell stories, and three of them are lawyers now, but they tell stories of being 11, sitting in these seminars on neuro-linguistic programming and me expecting them to be interested. (laughs) (laughs) And I I look back on it and realize, yeah, I was pushing them a little hard. (laughs) (laughs) But but they're all fabulous trial lawyers now, so I guess it worked out at the end, didn't it? Clearly it's sunk in for them, even unconsciously. I was also wondering whether or not in speaking to other trial lawyers and other people, you have been incredibly candid about the way, what you were fearing. Um, Have you found this to be a common experience for other trial lawyers, not necessarily being 
fearful of people, but there's a fear there that stops them from performing in court in the way that they want to. Yeah, of course. I remember going to a, a Rick Friedman seminar in Vegas once, and he asked us to line up around the room, and there was 200 people there, you know, and in the order of our comfort of being in front of a jury, right? And there was a fight to be at the end. <laughs> <laughs> and I also found it interesting that the end of the line were the older lawyers. I think it takes a certain level of maturity to recognize just how, you know, I, I can give you the neurology of why a courtroom is so terrifying to people. It is perceived in our Olympic brain as a life-threatening event, you know, and the reason for that is, is how did we evolve? We evolved in tribes. The average tribe was about 12 families, and all of the resources were controlled by the chief. Chief didn't like you, <laughs> you died. <laughs> Not only did you die, your family died. They starved to death. If you were banished from the tribe, you died. You know, the tribe a mile away would kill you. The animals would eat you. You would starve to death. You'd freeze to death. Being banished was death. So what do we experience in a courtroom? We've got the chief up there looking down on us. We've got the 12 family representatives in the jury box, right? And one of us are going to get banished. It's a certainty, right? One of us have to be banished. Now, the cortex can deal with all that very well, but not our Olympic brain. And that's why it no longer surprises me because I understand it. But I, as I have gone up in the profession, the level of the cases that I try have greater and greater value. So there's these white shoe, tall building law firms, you know, with a thousand lawyers. And the senior partner's up there at the lectern with his hand shaking just a little bit, you know, and his voice cracking just a little bit. And, you know, you, you recognize that this terror is not unique. It's not a character flaw. It doesn't mean you're weak. It means you're a human being, you know, and that's what you're responding to. So I've spent a lot of time and a lot of energy dealing with finding out how to deal with that symptom. And that's all they are, symptoms, right? How do you treat the symptom? And then how to teach it, you know, because I, I really enjoy teaching this to people. And I guess the reason I enjoy it so much is I went from a position of absolute powerlessness. You know, I couldn't walk through a cafeteria to now I look forward to hostile rooms, you know, politically, because, I'm, you know, we're doing very progressive stuff and I'm a conservative Republican. So I'm constantly in the midst of people being angry. I actually enjoy it because it's so challenging to move the group over. And, you know, the past five, six years, maybe 10 years, I'm always successful because it's a skill set. And it has very little to do with what I say. It has everything to do with how I say it, how I look at you when I say it how I use my hands, how I open my body to you, how I move. It's complex and there's probably 500 skills I'm using at one time. 
I didn't set out to do that, but I noticed that, you know, there was this, it, it was quite fulfilling, you know, the feeling when the meeting was over the, that I would make friends with these people, you know, who come in so angry to begin with. I have a, a, a city councilman that I first appointed as a deputy mayor, and then I appointed him as a council member, then he ran for election and, and won. How I met him and how I, he's six foot four, and he weighed 400 pounds at the time, a huge guy, and he's pointing his finger at me, yelling at me. <laughs> Normally those situations would terrify people. They certainly would have terrified me, but that's not what happened. He was a minister too, and I, I said, Pastor, why are you pointing your finger at me? I'm not pointing my finger at you. The technique there is to bring them into their cortex, you know, with a question, concentrating on the physicality of it. It was a very easy question. And once we then started communicating, and interestingly enough, of the entire room, and there was about 50 people there, he was the only one that said anything of value. (laughs) But if I had done what I would normally have done and run away from him, you know, get away from him somehow. And that's what we all do. I never would have had the experience of him. And he has been an incredible resource. So I guess what I'm attempting to convey with this is once you learn how not to just react, but to analyze the situation and do it very quickly and then use a skill, you can further communication. You know, I've also been of the opinion and still am of the opinion that 99 and 9 tenths percent of the people make the best decisions they know how to make. Rarely do I run into anybody with evil intent. And when you give people the benefit of the doubt, I'm happier when I do that. Now, that's not to say I always do that. I, mean, you know. I find that really interesting. And one thing that I was thinking about as you were speaking was how much this um, understanding the human condition and confronting the physicality of it and drawing people in in order to persuade them. It's really effective, but it almost seems to come, I would say, as a step after you've started to master the elements of advocacy. And I noted that you had mentioned, you know, you had been on NLP courses, you've been reading about persuasion, but you didn't just do that. You were attending things like the Jerry Spence program for a month and also the Rick Friedman. Can you tell us a bit more about the sort of resources when we're looking at advocacy technique that you were looking at? this is a great time to be a lawyer. It's a great time to be anything, you know? I mean, for the first time in history, education is available to everyone for free. It's called the internet. (laughs) I was late calling in. No, I wasn't. I was going to be late because I was doing a course on handwriting. I want to improve my handwriting, you know, on the internet, you know? (laughs) Anything you want to improve today, you can. It's right there for you you know, thousands of books. A vacation to the family was me sitting in a hard chair in a conference room and them out doing things, you know. I mean, because you could write the vacation off that way, right? You know, it used to be you had to spend thousands of hours in hotel rooms. 
in hoping that you might find a jewel within the miasma of self-importance that so often exists in those conference rooms, you know, when people are presenting, you know, it's see how cool I am. <laughs> but, you know, the really good ones, you walk away with just a couple jewels of how to do your job just a little bit better. And then, you know, as we got more affluent, we would hire these people to come in and do seminars for the firm. The core of what we do is train. It's not practice law. You know, I, I would say that if we have one primary focus, it's training our lawyers to be lawyers. You know, and I was blessed with an incredible family. I mean, my wife runs the office. She runs the money. They, she doesn't let me touch a check. <laughs> I've never done that very well. <laughs> When she met me, I met her in a law firm. She was a secretary in the law firm. And when we got together, she gave me $5 a day for lunch as she paid off all my debts. You know, I was ne never able to handle money. <laughs> when I'm constantly upset about somebody in the office who's not reading enough and not studying enough and not practicing enough, and she reminds me, they got jobs. <laughs> you know, <laughs> People have very short amount of time, and, and I've just been blessed with more time to study because she gave it to me. She did a lot of the things that I probably should have been doing with, the, with just the faith that it would come, the skill set would come. Without being too immodest, I think it proofs in the pudding. You know? <laughs> I definitely agree. And of course, you were talking about the Jerry Spence program that you had been on you went there for a month and of course we had the privilege of Jerry Spence calling you um, in the middle of this podcast which is really cool so what sort of things were you learning learning there if you can just give us an outline of what you were studying yeah I guess if I were to point at something that you know really got the snowball rolling down the mountain that was there primarily what I, I walked away with, people walk away with many things, but what I walked away with was a recognition that showing our vulnerability to each other is what binds us to each other. It's what connects us. And lawyers are the last people willing to show any vulnerability. <laughs> and at the trial lawyers college, we did all kinds of skills and we, you know, we did the traditional stuff. But one of the techniques they use is role reversals. Every witness you're going to do, you do a role reversal. You be the witness, have somebody question you, or you question somebody playing the witness, you know. But the idea is to try to get in their skin, try to see the world the way they see the world. That's extremely effective when you're picking a jury. You, that's the beginning of the process. Too, too often I find people stop there, you know. Uh, you then have to speak the language of that juror, you know, once you know who he is, once you know who your jury is, you have to change your presentation to put it in a language, present it in a way that is going to be most conducive to them learning what you're teaching, because that's ultimately what we are. We are teachers and how well we do that will determine what kind of result it is. So I guess that was the first thing I learned. I went into it with the view that good lawyers were the meanest junkyard dog on the block, you know. We had these mock trials, and I'm doing the opening. I compulsively work on this stuff. And uh, 
there was a guy named Judge Bob Rose, who was a Wyoming Supreme Court justice who was retired. He was, he's really old at the time and he had one eye, you know, he had a patch over his eye and he's in a wheelchair, but he's one of my jurors. When I went up to him after it was over and I said, so how was it? And he goes, that was the finest opening I've ever seen. And then you turned into the biggest asshole I've ever seen. <laughs> and it was because of how I was treating the other side. You know, I mean, I wouldn't let him say anything the way I was objecting. The way I, was, I was just messing with him, you know. He had tears in his eyes and, you know, I mean, it was ugly. It was really ugly. And what Judge Rose told me, he said, you know, once you have all the power in the room, you don't do anything to look like a bully because people will immediately hate you when that happens. And of course they do. But when you start looking at it as a power dynamic and, you know, that started me on this path. And before the trial lawyers college ended, the guy who was in tears, <laughs> he wasn't happy about it. You know, you, you live there, two people to a room, you know, so imagine kind of a college dorm situation, you know. I remember somehow there was four of us in a room and Jerry Spence comes in, sits on the bed, and he's asking me, he goes, why are you so mean? <laughs> And I said, because I read this book from this lawyer from Wyoming. <laughs> and you read his first books, and that's what he was. And that's who I was emulating. And he said, you know, that's why I'm doing the Trial Lawyers College, is to teach lawyers so they don't have to go through the 20 years that I went through of stuff that is disabling to you, that has no benefit to you whatsoever. And so... At that point, I started, it's okay to be a nice guy. <laughs> I can still be a very good advocate and be vulnerable and love people. And bonding with people is a, a skill, but it's also real. You know, people think it's manipulative in many respects, but you can't bond with somebody unless you both bond, <laughs> you know. It's kind of like uh, the electron, you know, the negative electron going around the, the positive nucleus of the atom. You have to, it's both ways. So I frequently, you know, I, oh, it takes about 15 minutes to bond with somebody in a deposition. But I do bond with them. And then I'm slowly disincorporating them, you know, taking apart their story, taking apart the case, you feel guilty as hell. <laughs> I, I still haven't quite figured out how to deal with that. I do my job. So much of how we treat each other and enjoy each other and experience each other is visual and has nothing to do with what we say. But it is very real. Uh, makes sense? Yes, it definitely does. I'm realizing now just the way we're talking, we're at an angle. We're not both looking into the camera. That's important. That's important to the relationship. If we look directly at each other, like across the table, it's a different relationship. You know, that's why one of the things I teach is where to sit when you take a deposition. Never sit across from the person you're deposing. Sit to their side. 
you know, at a, at a 90 degree angle. And then I teach whatever I learn. The next thing I know, they, I'm getting in fights in the deposition because they don't want to sit that way. <laughs> Because it's so damn effective. It's very hard for a person to remember he's an adversary when you're sitting at a 90 degree. Oh, yes. Because the visual cue for adversity is right across from each other, face to face. There's a concept of mirroring where you just move when they move. You know, you just kind of have the same body posture as they have and you adopt their posture. Those are signs of affiliation. That's how we evolve. That's how we signal each other affiliation. I took my wife and one of my kids to Africa to see the apes, you know, the gorillas. It was quite a trek, you know, to find this tribe of gorillas. I've read a lot about them. And so I'm using hand signals and, and the stuff they use, you know, to show each other affiliation. Next thing I know, this baby gorilla comes up and hits me on the leg. <laughs> But, you know, just, just a gesture, just a hand, one hand gesture where I, you know, where I'm pointing my hand at you and then back at myself, you know, just this waving of the hand. It took me six months to learn how to do that so you couldn't see it. And then it took another six months so it just happens, you know, when I need affiliation. Just that gesture with opposing counsel wants resulted in him making a decision that resulted in $300 million at the end. Wow. Because the judge came out and wanted to, was offering to recuse himself because I was representing his uh, court reporter, right? And he offered the other side. Now, this judge was making incredible rulings for us, right? <laughs> and he should have jumped at it, you know? But I had just finished that gesture with him. Uh, and it was over nothing, really. He says, no, Judge, that's fine. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> because it, it became personal, the personal affiliation of me and him. He didn't view it as a decision for the case. He was in his emotional brain. And I was friends with him. And I truly was. I mean, it's not like I wasn't. When you do these things, it works both ways. I do them deliberately. So you do them deliberately, but it looks incredibly natural. And you were saying that it was six months before you got the movement right, and then another six months before it became natural, which just sounds incredible to me. And it also reminds me of something else that you had said. It was um, during one of the case analysis webinars where you had mentioned addressing, I think you were addressing the jury. And the judge was really engrossed in what you were saying. He really liked it, but the jury weren't. They were angry with you and you were trying to figure out why. So I hope you can remember what I'm talking about, but I'd love you for you to expand. That was one of the cases that kept me motivated to learn this stuff. When the jury, I'm looking at them head on, face to face back then. Now I'm very aware of what my body posture is with the jury. And I'm doing this closing and, you know, and I'm shaking my finger and I'm, you know, doing all the stuff I know not to do now. And the judge just kept going on and on later about how much he loved that closing. But when we polled the jury, they thought I was rude, arrogant, officious, you know. And the difference was 
I was head on with the jury. And when I would point my finger, I was pointing at them. And so even though I was talking about something else, the visual was being perceived as an assault, as an attack. You said learning to deal with that hostility is part of the tricks. And I was thinking that perhaps that's similar or in the same boat as walking towards the things that make you get afraid and, and going after that and confronting that fear. So is that all part of the same thing that I know that a lot of trial lawyers can be worries about or can cause them anxiety? You know, I never thought of that because I do talk about that, that, you know, it's under the rocks of fear, you find the gold, you know, uh, very few metaphors I make up myself, but that's one of mine. I'm very proud of it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm giving you a silent round of applause here because I thought it was brilliant. I think fear is a big signal for lots of things. You know, the, in a courtroom, when you feel it, it's because something is going bad. You know, the jury is perceiving something you don't want them to perceive. The judge yelling at you, it could be that, you know, I mean, because you never want to become the omega in the pack. You know, that's the dog who eats last. You know, that's the dog everybody picks on. Human beings are not much different. We always have an omega in the group. Now, we, we try to develop skills not to treat them that way, but that's what we all know they're there. You can't let that become you. And the judge is able to influence that tremendously. So when that starts, you become really frightened. You know, learning how to deal with that fear is important just to be able to survive on an even playing field. But more importantly, if you can deal with it in front of the jury in a way that they respect, your verdict just quadrupled. It's the unspoken stuff that makes big verdicts, you know. I tried a case with Brian Panish. I'm trying a lot of cases with Brian Panish, great trial lawyer. But he's got this one gesture he uses, you know. He just kind of looks at the jury and he flips his hand a little bit. And within the first hour of the case, you learn that means that person's lying. <laughs> <You know? laughs> And he doesn't even know he's doing it, you know, until I pointed it out to him because I asked him to teach it to me. You know, he thought I was being a little weird, but show me how you do that. <laughs> it's really difficult to learn unconscious gestures. You first have to be conscious of the fact that you don't know what you're doing with it. You can do it well when you're consciously working on it, but you gotta to get to the point it's unconscious competence. It's driving a car. You have to be unconsciously competent in it or you're gonna get killed out there. Same thing with the courtroom. Uh, when the kids would get cars, if my wife would go out and find the radio on their car, they lost their car for a month. Because until you get that 500 hours, you're not unconsciously competent and you can't have any distractions. That's why cell phones kill so many people. I think probably cell phones have killed more people than drug drivers. Yeah, that's true. So in terms of confronting that hostility or fear, do you have any examples for us of where, where you've done that in a case of your own? All the time. You know, I tend to piss people off. <laughs> you know, the first thing you have to do is you have to control your own heart rate. Because if you let your heart rate get over 120, 
you're starting to lose competence. 140, you're mentally challenged. 170, you can't even control your bodily functions. All tied to your heart rate. So if you're under attack in the courtroom and my heart rate starts going up, I know I have to bring it down. And there's techniques to do that. There's combat breathing, you know, where you breathe in at a count of four, hold it for a count of four, exhale at a count of four, hold for a count of four, and just keep doing that. It's a four box, it's called. You know, there's other things you do if you have time, you know, like before it starts, what do I see? You know, specifically, what do I see right in front of me? And I'm describing it to myself. And then it's, what do I feel? Where do I feel the floor on my feet, the chair on my on my body? You know, what do I physically feel? Then what do I emotionally feel? Am I frightened? And whatever it is. And the reason you're doing that is because you want to bring yourself into the present. Fear is something that happens in the future. It's not happening at the second you're doing it, right? So you got to get into the moment. Then I do my breathing, and then I go, I'm back. You know, I, I say that in my head, I'm back. And, and I've done that several times with judges who, you know, one time I was in this front of this federal judge who was just a total abomination of a human being. You know, he's legendary up in the Bay Area. Uh, you know. And uh, because I was able to do that, you know, I mean, he had just said the most horrible things. <laughs> and I go, Your Honor, I'm sorry that upset you. Let me, you know, and just talk to him without my voice raising, without it speeding up, keeping it slow, bringing him, pacing him back down. If you're able to ignore the tendency to obsess over being treated unfairly and obsess over what is your immediate goal, right? That's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to move him back to center line. If I'm focused on that, I can let go of the personal involvement. I can let go of that feeling. I mean, we hate to be bullied. We hate to be treated unfairly. And we will go back to our hotel rooms, grinding our teeth over it. Most trial lawyers are crazy because they suffer from PTSD, because within your Olympic brain, this stuff is life-threatening. When that judge gets angry at you, in a state of nature, in the tribe, he could take everything away from you. Those are absolutely normal reactions, and it's the lawyer's job to learn how to control them or deal with them. And fortunately, there's great medication for that these days. <laughs> <laughs> I think the techniques that you shared about how to um, control your breathing and your anxiety are absolutely excellent because, of course, you can then go on to engage the jury or the judge and effectively persuade them and move them to centre. And that also brings me to the second point that I really wanted to talk to you about, which was the use of language getting that word selection right and you'd mentioned metaphors before and that brilliant one that you had coined yourself but if we can now move to, to metaphors like why do you think that they're so important in terms of persuading people and moving them in the direction that you want them to go in well back in the 80s uh lakoff and johnson they wrote a book called metaphors uh we live by uh, it's the driest book you'll ever read. <laughs> <I mean>. <laughs> 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 uh, 
But it's essential. I mean, you, I, you don't need to get that much into the weeds with it to understand it. There's other books on metaphor now, but it's cognitive metaphors. And it's through metaphor that we're able to have any abstract thought at all. My dog isn't capable of metaphor. He only reacts to what's in front of him. <laughs> and I mean, he's really a smart dog. He's my best friend, but he lives totally in the moment. Human beings, we need abstract metaphors to understand almost everything. Let me give you some primary examples. Also, great therapists use metaphors, and you don't even know they did it to you. <laughs> you <know? laughs> Milton Erickson was the one who, who first developed that technique. But if you look at how we think and how we come to conclusions as a path with many turns and many forks in the road, what I'm trying to do is set the map is make this road a little thicker, a little more inviting. How you do that is you prime the brain with the metaphor. It will then guide the person's thoughts. So let me give you an example. They don't do it so much, but they used to do it in America. They quit doing it because I started giving speeches about it. But they would do this thing of, of they tell the jury, you know what this is to them? They're just trying to win the lotto. And you're their lotto ticket, right? They just want you to make them rich. So they've used the metaphor of the lotto ticket because it works for them. You know, it, it allows the jury to totally disregard all of the facts, you know, and deal with just this one easy concept in making a decision. So we do what's called a reversal when that happens. And... I hate trying cases against bad lawyers because they give me they don't give me enough material to work with. You need to be able to reverse what, what they're doing. So that one would go like this. It would go, you know, I'd pick up this notebook and I look at the jury and I go, here it is. This is the four state Powerball super lotto ticket and it's worth $164 million. And then I look at the client and I go, and it's yours. It's all yours, but you gotta give up a few things. You will never ever make love to your husband again without being in agonizing pain. You will never pick up your grandchild and hold them, not ever again. Then I do one more thing, because you do it in threes. And then, do you want it? It's yours. Do you want it? By that time, they're in tears, you know? And then I turn to the jury, and I go, anybody? Will anybody take it? <laughs> you know, when they shake their head no, <laughs> call the travel agent, you're going on vacation. <laughs> 99% of the lawyers I know doing personal injury work, what they do is they go and try to get money for pain and suffering, right? Isn't that what, what they do? But, you know, I have corns. When you're 67, you have all kinds of things that are wrong. One of them is corns on my toes, and I've had them for years. You know, I have to go get pedicures, and it's okay to get a pedicure now, but 15 years ago, 
they looked at you really weird if you were getting a pedicure. <laughs> and sometimes I would shave them myself and I cut them and they'd get an infection. And, you know, it was incredibly painful to go skiing because the boot would be really tight on my corns, you know. But I'll sell them to you. Do you want my corns? How much will you give me for my corns? Huh? I mean, they have to be worth a lot, right? <laughs> Isn't that what we do? Isn't that what we do when we try to sell pain and suffering? Yeah. yeah. You know, and we wonder why we don't get anything. <laughs> you know? So it was uh, Johnson. We hired Johnson to do a seminar for us on metaphors, you know, cognitive metaphors, who told us that in Western culture, there's a metaphor that well-being equals wealth, right? There is no metaphor that pain and suffering equals wealth. It's, it's not there. So now what I'll do frequently, like one of the things I do is I don't ask for past medical specials. Almost never. I mean, I've walked away from 200,000 in past medicals. Because the moment I give them that number, that's where they start the calculation. Because it's an objective, verifiable fact, right? That's where they will start. Well, I'm asking for $100 million. I don't want them starting at 200. It's really a long ways. <laughs> so I just get rid of those. I also talk about injury selection. Is You know, I want to talk to you about why you get up in the morning, what makes life worth living? You know, what do you love? What's your passions? You know, they always will talk about the kids. That's very important to them. They'll talk about their spouse. They'll talk about different things. Then I go, but then I want to talk about, well, what do you actually do with them? You want the, what they're doing. And then you'll go to somebody else and say, tell me about the diamonds in your life. See how I've now transitioned to diamonds right? Yes. Tell me about the diamonds in your life. Then in the closing, I'll talk about how, you know, this case would be very easy. I might even do it in the opening. I mean, in the uh, jury selection, depending on how loose the judge is. But I'll say, you know, this case would be easy. If the plaintiff had a bag of diamonds, and I don't mean those little diamonds. I mean those big diamonds, you know, like those really big ones you see in the Costco display case, you know, a bag full of them. And if the defendant took them and threw them away and couldn't find them, couldn't recover them, we'd add up the diamonds, the weight, the clarity, we'd have them appraised. And if it comes to $200 million, it's $200 million. You wouldn't give them a discount because you were feeling sympathy for the defendant, would you? Well, what about the plaintiff? Are you going to give them more because you feel sympathy for the plaintiff? No. Being a juror is without sympathy, and it's adding up the value of the diamonds. Anybody disagree with that? That metaphor is solid now, isn't it? That's incredible. Then you talk about all the things... They're going to live for another 42 years and they will never make love again because their back is broke or, you know, whatever it is, right? You take all the good diamonds that's in our life and you tell the jury to put a value on them. 
And yes, they are priceless. You know, they, every one of those things is a MasterCard moment, right? Remember the MasterCard commercial? Best thing that ever happened to plate employers? Huh? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but you know, we value things that are priceless. Things that are priceless, uh, we, we value them all the time. You, Christie's auction house, you know, and then I'll use the metaphor of the $450 million painting, and you can segue into other metaphors with it. It's just hard. It's just very hard, but you agreed to do this job, but you can keep the pain and suffering. We don't want it. We don't want their sympathy and we don't want you to value something that has no value. See how those metaphors work for you? I was taken away. I was with you all the way with the, with the metaphors. That was incredibly effective. The more I learn about metaphor, the better the lawyer I become. Also, the better the mayor I become, not only just for persuasion reasons, but I set my own metaphors. The, one of the things that'll happen in trials is the the judge will tell the jury that uh, I'm just the referee. I'm just the umpire. I call the balls and the strikes. You know, or the other side will say, we're just looking for a level playing field. I'm always going following that. And... First of all, I do not want a game metaphor. I do not want a sports metaphor because if it's a game metaphor, every time they say objection and it's sustained, that jury's going to think I'm cheating. The last thing I can let them do is think I'm cheating. There are fish that will attack other fish who cheat. <laughs> you know? It causes the same facial expression as a foul odor which is a pathogen, which is the first sense that lights up, you know, it's disgust, right? That's what cheating means. I cannot be a cheater. So I talk to them, you know, I'm not playing game. This is not a game. It's not balls and strikes. It's my job to show you the facts. And when the judge thinks I'm wasting your time, he's going to tell me. He's going to tell me to turn that light off, right? And I'll turn it off. But it is my job to get as many facts in front of you as I can. And I can assure you, this is not a game to Mrs. Smith. This is her life. You know, get away from the game theory. You know, the other part of being good at this is to know the science and know the, know the medicine. And, you know, I mean, how many of you out there doing personal injury cases get spine medical journal? but you do spine cases. Now that I have this biotech company, I'm talking to doctors all the time, right? And one of the molecules that we have is gonna do wonderful things with back pain. We honestly see a day without opioid addiction at all, you know, because of these molecules. But I'm talking to them about back pain and I realize I know this a lot better than they do. <laughs> Because I've been reading it for 30 years, you know, and when some asshole gets up there and says that it was a minor whiplash and they recovered within six months, I know that statistically 84% of those people will relapse. How many other lawyers out there know that? 84% relapse. You only need 51% relapsing. Now you have a life care plan for every case you have. I'm telling you, 
for those who want to just really embrace this, I really believe that if all of us became good lawyers, defense prosecutors, the, the entire bar that did trial work became great trial lawyers, our, we'd have a great society. We really would, you know, because you can't be a really good lawyer without compassion. It becomes so polarized and so politicized that somebody who should do six months in jail ends up doing 60 years in jail because that's how they measure success. Can I ask about the reversals? Because I've heard you mention that before and I wasn't quite sure how it works and I haven't tried it before, but I'm just really seeing now how it's just such a brilliant way to neutralise your bad facts and any of the good facts from the other side that they try and throw against you. Because when you said that, you know, you don't like being against bad lawyers, I'm wondering if they just don't like throwing their great metaphors because you're going to use it against them and bang them over the head with it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's hard to know anymore because of these podcasts and webinars and the videos that are out there. But I, I, because almost every trial now, they've, they've watched them, you know, and you can see that they've watched them because they try to use it. <laughs> you know, that's not enough. If you look at this stuff as tricks, you will fail. You have to know it inside out for it to work, you know, for you to be really good at what you do. And rarely do they do that. I, I want to answer your question first about reversals. Every good commercial, every good scene, there's a reversal in value that occurs. You know, it's pouring rain and it's horrible and, and you walk in and there's your husband you haven't seen in a year or a month. Or, you know, it's, a rever- it's from bad to good or it'll be good to bad. You know, there's a reversal in values that are taking place. Jokes are a reversal of some value like that, you know. So over the years, I've trained myself to look for the reversal when I'm watching television, when I'm watching comedians. My wife loves Seinfeld, you know, so she drags me to Vegas to see Seinfeld. And I'm sitting next to her and I go, do you see that? You see, did you see the reversal? <laughs> you know, <laughs> and... She finally turns around and says, would you shut the f- <laughs> <laughs> They're all around us. And in order for you to have them to become second nature, you got to first learn what they are, observe them. And I do this thing with my fingers where I say the reversal, where I turn my fit hand, you know, like you can see it, but the people won't be able to. My kids were always doing that to me. See the reversal? See, (laughs) One time I was doing a case and it was close to home and usually they're not, but this one was. And my son, my 19, my son was 19 at the time. One of them, I have two sons and my wife were watching the trial. I close, they close. Mm -hmm. We're walking out to go to lunch. And my wife says, you're in big trouble. (laughs) That guy is good. (laughs) You know, it's closing. And I wasn't concerned, you know, and I turned to my son and I said, I want you to figure out the reversals for me while I go mind map, you know, the rebuttal. And mind maps are something everybody needs to learn. If you don't know them, learn them. And uh, at 19, he gave me the reversals. I mean, they were very obvious, right? (laughs) Because he's learned them. He's learned them since he was 10, you know? Uh, 
and you know this the guy's metaphor was david copperfield went to vegas to see david copperfield right and how he could make the train disappear and that's what i was doing to them was this magic thing right and i said well you know how you avoid illusions is you get really detailed yeah. And you look at the detail of what occurred. And so I take a picture of this little dent. I mean, it was a little dent, but blow it up <laughs> and focus on the details. And re using his metaphor to reverse it, you know, to show that, no, this collision was really bad and could have caused these injuries, you know. So I'm constantly looking for how do I take what they say and make it apply to my case. But look what happens in all of these. It has nothing to do with the facts. I mean, whoever captures the metaphor gets the verdict. Nothing to do with the facts. It's, you know, I tell people, enjoy being a lawyer because it's not sustainable. Now that we know how to do these things, it is just not sustainable. I remember when a couple billion dollars was a huge verdict. Now, you know, if you're a huge verdict is nine figures, you know, eight's okay, but. You know. Goodness. And did you, I think you mentioned earlier was you had a verdict of 300 million. Yes. For one of your cases. So, wow, that's, that's what we're talking about. And, and that's why one of you, you're one of those super lawyers. But, you know, understand that it, I truly do mean this. It, it, I am probably the one of the least capable. I just have an iron ass. In law school, I got in a fight, and it, there's a significant portion of my left parietal lobe in my brain is missing. It's just gone. You know, I have real disabilities. I have word-finding problems. If I get stressed, you know, I forget my wife's name. It took a while for her to get used to that. <laughs> <laughs> or I'll mix mix them up and call call her somebody else, you know. So, you know, as a result, when I go into trial, I always have somebody with me to correct me. If I start calling the witness by the wrong name or, or you know, they, they're very close to me and they know when I'm doing it, and they just stand up and say it. Because it could be very confusing to the jury, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also benefited me because I have emotional lability, meaning it's very hard for me to control my emotions. Very easy for me to cry. And so as a result, once you, once you learn about mirror cells and how we all have them, I can make a jury cry at the drop of a hat. It's not hard. It's, the trick is when do you make them cry? <laughs> the timing of it is critically important. Yes. The point of it is, is anybody can do this if they spend the time learning the skills to do it. And the other thing is, you have to have the courage to love people. I mean, really love them. You know, when I first started realizing it, I used to, uh, you know, you begin with the end in mind. What is your goal when you start, you know? And, it, and I used to think it was the money when I'd walk into the trial, how big the verdict was. And then I realized it's how close I become to the jury. That's the goal. One of my first larger verdicts, I, I remember we're out side the courtroom and I'm talking to the jury and this one guy came, comes up to me and he sticks his hand on my shoulder and he goes, 
Rex, goodbye. I've got to go. I wanted to talk to you, but I can't. Goodbye. And we both welled up. We both welled up. That's how close you, you have to be willing to get to people, you know? Once you're willing to do that and willing to bear the pain that comes with that, because people will always betray you eventually. <laughs> and if you don't learn to give them the grace to do that, you know, we become very isolated people. We become very guarded. I have a job where 12 people will write a check on somebody else's checking account and give it to the person they like the most. Isn't that really what it is? Isn't it really, at the end of the day, isn't that what we're doing? No. But there are some things you can't fake. You can't fake that. The case that Brian and I did, we, it was 57 million or something like that. The foreman, and you know, in LA, I hate trying cases in LA because you got traffic and the jury wants to go home. You know? uh, but she comes up to me while I'm talking to different jurors and she goes, and it's always Rex. They always call me by my first name. <laughs> and it's Rex, you're a kind man. And I want you to know I know that. <laughs> that was all. And away she goes. <laughs> we are all kind, gentle people when we're with those we love, aren't we? I think that's what we would like to be. And the more we're willing to be that in leadership roles, the more it works for them, you know? But it does have to be genuine. I mean, what we're doing in the city of Lancaster is incredible stuff. I mean, it might just save the planet. <laughs> Seriously, it might just save it. I don't think so, but it might. <laughs> you know? But how you get there is people have to know that you truly love your city. You know, and what is love? I, and I always tell them, what is it? It's when I worry about your well-being. That's all it means. Doesn't mean more than that. But you do have to be concerned about the other person's well-being. And if you're concerned about the jury's well-being, it will shine through. I don't think it's magical. I think we all know it. It's just we got to be able to bear the laughter. When people ask me, what's the one skill trial lawyers need? You got to bear the laughter because as you get closer and closer to people, they get more and more nervous, more and more aggressive. Sometimes the judge gets really upset, you know, when he sees that jury just falling into your camp, you know, then you have to end up with rulings that him trying to just make it fair. <laughs> no, follow the law. Don't, don't make it fair, judge. <laughs> I can really see how it's really an amalgamation of the A, hard work that you do, your emotional intelligence, the neurology behind it and also the techniques that you use another thing that I wanted to ask you about and this is about advocacy technique is using negative space as a basis for your questions and I think I heard it for the first for the first time from you in um, one of the seminars that I was I was listening to and 
just by asking what wasn't there, I was able to come up with so many questions. Unbelievable. I use it to devastating effect. So I attribute that to you. But for listeners who haven't heard about it at all, can you just expand on that, please? So one of the things, I almost quit being a lawyer back in the early days because these experts, you know, these doctors that get up there and just lie and lie and lie. And the jury had believed them even, but I knew they were lying. <laughs> you know? So, you know, one of the ways I learned to deal with that was, and I want to digress a little bit. My wife used to say that when she dies on her headstone, she wants it to say, I was the doctor because I was forever walking into the kitchen or the living room and, and I go, you be the doctor. And then I would start firing questions, right? <laughs> now, my wife is the brightest person I've ever met. And, and I say that without reservation. How do I know I tested her? I mean, <laughs> you're going to be with somebody forever. You should test them, right? <laughs> <laughs> She's incredibly bright. So she was able to take these roles and just stick it, stick it to me every time. You know? And I'd get frustrated and I'd walk out and then I'd come back and do it again. So by the time I put that doctor on the stand, I'd done it a hundred times. You know, that's how it started. But then you still have this problem with the jury's going to believe him, not you, when it comes to a medical issue. You know, how could I have the hubris to think anything else, right? So the trick is, is to show them why he wasn't being a doctor now. And if he was being one, why he's not a very good one. And how you do that is all the stuff he didn't consider, all the stuff he didn't do. That's the negative space. What 95% of the lawyers out there, what they do is they talk about the stuff that's in their report, the stuff that he did do. I never talk about the stuff that he did do. <laughs> I lose that one, right? And neither do the lawyers in my firm. You know, the, the thing I want to I want to brag a little bit. My lawyers, I've trained five of them now to be trial lawyers. Every single one by their second trial is hitting million dollar verdicts on relatively small cases. You know what were traditionally small cases. This stuff really works. What was I saying? Oh, the negative space, right? So, you know, like one of the things they'll do is, they used to say they were just faking or that uh, they're exaggerating or their symptoms, all of their symptoms are subjective, right? That's a big one they used to do. One thing I always do is I look up the words. I look up all the words. If I'm not absolutely certain what it means, what does symptom mean? It's a subjective report of something. <laughs> you can't have a symptom unless it's subjective, right? Well, you know, he said he was in pain, but he was able to blah, 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 blah. Well, doctor, what was his pulse? I mean, you took his pulse, didn't you? You didn't take his pulse? Well, doctor, you certainly read such and such where a pulse is probably the only objective symptom of pain. You have an elevated pulse when you're in pain. They never take it. Stuff that why it doesn't matter if they took it. You know, what was his blood pressure? <laughs> you know, I guess that really would matter. You find everything that's not in that report and that's what you ask about. Right? And then you ask about all of the depositions. 
Well, of course he didn't read the depositions, you know. <laughs> but who's Mary Smith? I don't know. And then you say, well, did you know Mary Smith saw what happened to them in that car when they crashed? You know, and it's not just a witness. You got to say what she saw, right? That would have been helpful, wouldn't it? Everything that could possibly be helpful, they didn't do. He crawls off that stand, you know, and, and what we do is we call them first. We always call their witnesses. The, the perfect trial is when all of their witnesses have been called in my case. <laughs> Thank you for expanding on that. I, I think it's something that absolutely everyone should know about. But before we leave it, let's talk about where that comes from. There's a painting out there of a train coming out of a fireplace. Uh, and then the fireplace is there. It's got uh, candlesticks and, you know, all the stuff that's there. And you ask people, describe this painting to me. And you describe all the things that are there. The negative space is all the things that are not there. There are no tracks. There was no smoke coming out of the train uh, smokestack. There was, you know, all the stuff that's not there. So if you imagine a picture that you're looking at and what's not there, that's the metaphor you're using, you know, that takes you down the path of where you want to end up. You want to choose your own metaphors to guide you. What are the metaphors that give you the best results? And focus on them and the rest will take care of itself. That's great. And I think I do have a picture of that train, the picture that you were talking about with the train and the candle. So um, we'll pop that on the website so people can see exactly what it is that you're talking about because it is great and demonstrates the point perfectly. Um, so the other question that I wanted to ask you about was juxtaposing an expert's testimony with the real world. And the examples that I recall that you gave were things like, for example, well, doctor, if, if that was your son, you would send them out for more x-rays, wouldn't you? And if that was your son, you'd definitely get a second opinion, wouldn't you? And it's just, I found it mind-blowing. It's so simple, but so obvious, and you can connect. But where, where did that idea come from? Because I thought that was also brilliant. You know, I just saw that in one of those conference rooms I was sitting in while the kids were at Disneyland. Because, <laughs> 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 you know, at this stage in my life, I'm looking back on it, and I'm not sure I made the right decisions. This took a lot of, lot of work because it wasn't laid out there for you. I mean, I had to search for it. I had to go down a lot of false starts, you know, but depends on how bad you want it, I guess. I couldn't bear the humiliation of being laughed at, and now I can bear it. And that's why I couldn't walk through the cafeteria. I had a choice. I could quit trying cases. I could quit being a trial lawyer, or I could learn to bear the laughter. And then I had to learn how to do it. Because every time you do one of these things, you're not going to do it well. You're going to screw it up. <laughs> it takes practice. <laughs> We've learned so much from you today and, and your mastery of so many subjects. Thank you. So that we can have these really, you know, tangible techniques that we can, we can take away and start applying. And, and I've already mentioned that you've said things where I've immediately taken them on board and they, I've had brilliant results from it. Good. My final questions really are, what three practical tips can you give our listeners to improve their advocacy? 
So you want me to describe how to save the planet with one thing. <laughs> Doesn't work that way. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought I'd try. I'd try it at least. Yeah, there's a couple things I do want to talk about. One of the things we did a few years back is Paul Ekman did all the work on facial expression recognition. And, you know, there's seven emotions that you have. Everybody has the same facial expression. It's cross-cultural. Everybody. Uh, we also know from 1996 and the studies in Italy, now UCLA is probably taking the lead on mirror cells, is that when we see an emotion, we feel the emotion. When they see anger on my face, they feel the part of their brain that signals anger lights up. Now, Sapolsky, Robert Sapolsky is a primate neurobiologist out of Stanford, smartest guy I've ever talked to. And I got to talk to him for two hours. You know, I interviewed him for this blog I had. One of the things he said to me when I asked him your question, what's the tip, right? <laughs> he goes, he says, I've never understood why lawyers try to make the jury angry or why they try to make them sad. He goes, when you make me sad, I turn away from you because I don't like to feel sad. When you make me angry, I don't like to be angry, especially when I can't express it. I just got to sit there and be angry, right? They turn away from you. And where do they turn? they turn to your opponent, right? I really took that to heart because I realized, and why we realized it is we started this company where with, there was a, a company called Emotion and we part, partnered with them where we could do focus groups and the camera watches the audience and then the computer, the algorithm deciphers the facial expressions. So we had this company going we're doing focus groups, we're seeing patterns in every jury trial we did, and then Apple buys the damn company. <laughs> so keep in mind, every time you look at your phone, Apple knows what you're feeling also, because they bought that algorithm for a reason. And it was effective, but what we learned was you want the jury angry in the middle of the trial, or you want them sad in the middle of the trial. And you don't want it coming from you. You want it coming from the witness. You don't want to be the genesis of that feeling. We found, too, that at the end of the case, if people were joyful, hopeful, happy, verdict skyrocketed. If they were angry or scared or sad, we dumped and of course, it makes sense. When you're scared, you're withholding resources. You're conserving resources. You're not giving them away, you know? Guiding the jury's emotions is essential. But at the same time, what did Sapolsky tell us? He said, why are you always looking for empathetic jurors, right? Empathetic people don't do anything. <laughs> They'll step over the body before they call 911. <laughs> Actually, they won't step over it. They'll get down on their hands and knees and cry. But they won't call 911. <laughs> they won't execute. You want detached people if you have the better case. You know? 
And then I think the most important thing I could tell lawyers is all of this stuff is really fascinating. It really will impact the results. But the simplest case is what's going to win. Every time, the person that presents the simplest case will win. And that comes from Kahneman's uh, Thinking Fast and Slow. It takes a lot of energy to analyze something as complex as a lawsuit. Most jurors don't have it. So you have to simplify. Simplest case wins. If you can't show it with a picture, forget it, because they're going to. Why waste your time? You know, there's another book I recently read every lawyer should read. It's called Duped, and it's the truth default theory. Everything we thought was true about how people uh, look for deceit was wrong. Was wrong, right? They start out believing us. Our default is to believe people because the people who didn't believe the group or believe other people initially got eaten by the tiger. You know, somebody says, that grass moving is a tiger. You don't believe them. You died. <laughs> if you did believe them, nothing happened to you. Your genes went on, right? We evolved to believe each other. So what happens in a courtroom? You both start out relatively in the same position, although the plaintiff is lower off. It doesn't have the same amount because you have something to gain. Right? that they take that into account. A criminal defendant, he doesn't want to go to prison. <laughs> so, you know. But then what happens is we start chipping away at it. We start chipping away at our own credibility. That's why how you behave in that courtroom is critical. How you treat your staff is critical. When mistakes happen, you have a choice. You can get angry. You know, the damn PowerPoint didn't work again. This is the 10th time. You know, I mean, that's happened to me. <laughs> when you get angry, what did you do? You just made the jury angry because they mirrored you. You've lost points, credibility points. You just got to let everything flow off you because you're holding on to that credibility. That's also why you keep your client out of the courtroom. The more that jury is exposed to your client, the less they're going to believe them. That's how it works, you know? So much of what we think is the way to do things is exactly opposite of what we should do. But we're not gonna know that until we read the books. I tell a metaphor, which is the story. I used to do my presentations with this. There was this group of business people who went down to the Amazon to go hunting or whatever they do in the Amazon. And they had a guide and they got on a plane and they went into the Amazon and the plane crashed. The lawyer survived and the guide survived, but the guide was seriously hurt. And if they didn't get help soon, he was going to die, and they both knew it. So the guide attempted to teach the lawyer what he needed to know to survive without him. And he would say, the green fruit? Never eat the green fruit. See the bark on the tree and the way it branches and the leaves and the roots. And the lawyer, oh, 
I don't want to hear that crap. I'm just not going to eat the green fruit, right? And the red fruit, eat the red fruit, see the bark, the leaves, you know, blah, blah, blah. Right? Doesn't want to hear it. Well, then eventually the guy dies and the red fruit runs out and he found some brown fruit and he ate it. And they found him on the jungle floor with all of his bodily fluids run out dead because he didn't learn the basics of it. He didn't learn how to tell if something was good or bad. That's what we're doing here. I should have told you the beginning of that story when we started and then end it by explaining what happened, right? Or then, then the, the lawyer died or, you know, you open the metaphor and then you close it. You know, whenever you give a presentation, always have an opening and close same metaphor, but you close the metaphor. If it's a long speech, do two or three metaphors, but close them in the reverse order. First in, last out. Just that one little skill, credibility goes through the roof. When we had that, the trial two years ago, one of the things I'll do is I pack the courtroom for the opening and the closing. And you do that for lots of reasons. One is if they're your people, they're going to be nodding their head and all. They just human nature, right? The other reason, though, is it gives the jury the impression this is a big case. This is an important thing. See all the people who've come to watch it, right? So I do that in the opening. And in the closing, you know what happens? The defense brought all their people. <laughs> they didn't get, you know, that's the last thing they wanted to do. <laughs> you know? Now they do get the benefit of the head shakes, but the, the goal of it was to show how important the case was. Okay. You know, it's important that we know why we're doing these things. I really believe that if all of us became good lawyers, defense prosecutors, the entire bar that did trial work became great trial lawyers, our, we'd have a great society. We really would, you know, because you can't be a really good lawyer without compassion. It becomes so polarized and so politicized that somebody who should do six months in jail ends up doing 60 years in jail because that's how they measure success, right? But if we were all very good at this, we wouldn't be doing those things to each other. Absolutely. It'd be a much more cooperative profession. It would be, in my law firm, and this took me a long time to learn, I do not let my lawyers write nasty letters. If the tone is wrong, we're developing a computer program that will alert me. Now, it'll first alert the lawyer, but if the lawyer doesn't fix it, it comes to me. Because we know there is nothing persuasive about being an asshole. <laughs> you know Thank you so much, Rex. And my final question for you is a very simple one. Where can our listeners find you online? Like, do you have a LinkedIn? Is there a website, a blog or a podcast? Yeah, we have a website. You know, we have Paris Law Firm. And my email is rrex at paris.com. P-A-R-R-I-S. Thank you so much, Rex. Thank you for having me. 
I thoroughly enjoyed this morning. Yay. You're a great interviewer. Oh. <laughs> Thank you. That means a lot. Thank you for listening to the Advocacy Podcast, Journeys to Excellence. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe and visit us at theadvocacypodcast.com for reading lists and other resources. Until next time.